Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted, we keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. Hello, everybody out there in Facebook land. Welcome to the Converge for Change podcast live edition. Um, Thank you so much uh, to everybody who is joining us near and far. We have an exciting conversation today. Uh, We are two days out from the Orleans Parish runoff for district attorney. And we have an on-time conversation for you tonight about what a progressive district attorney should look out look like. And so if you have not made a decision about who you are voting for on Saturday, uh, we hope that you will listen um, and learn and hopefully walk away um, knowing exactly how you're going to cast your vote. So tonight I am joined by three distinguished guests. Um, I am joined by Derwin Bunton, who is the Orleans Parish Chief Public Defender, Sarah Amojula of um, the Vera Institute of New Orleans. She is the Associate Director there. And then Zeke Wilt of Voices of the Experienced Vote. So before we start, I just want to give you a little bit of background on each one of our guests, and then we are going to jump into the conversation, and we also hope that you all can weigh in on the conversation. So please do use the chat function to send over any questions and engage in a dialogue there as well. Sarah joined the Vera team earlier this year. Sarah's work focuses on helping to manage and measure the progress of different programs, building relationships to expand Vera's work into other parts of Louisiana, and driving efforts to reshape prosecution in New Orleans. My next panelist and friend is Derwin Button. Derwin has served as the Chief Public Defender of the Orleans Parish Public Defender's Office for 11 years. He has spent his legal career fighting for the most disadvantaged in our criminal legal system. And last but not least, our third panelist is Nzike Wiltz. She is an educator, a mother of three, and works part-time with Voices of the Experience. Welcome all to the Converge for Change podcast. Thank y'all for being here. I can't hear you. We're muted by Morgan. Oh, okay. (laughs) Morgan is behind the scenes. Everybody knows Morgan on the Converge for Change podcast. She was the one that makes all all the magic happen. But yes, I can hear you now. Okay, Um, awesome. I said thanks for having us. (laughs) Or thanks for having me. Let's go, because I don't know about y'all, but it's been a long day for me. We are going to be here and be friends and family and have this conversation. Um, And just to get the conversation rolling and get folks introduced to you, I'd love if each one of you all could just kind of share 
Um, what brought you to this work? Each one of you has a distinct role in the criminal legal reform movement in Orleans Parish and in the greater state of Louisiana. Um, so maybe starting with you, Sarah, can you talk a little bit about your journey to the work that you do at the Vera Institute? Yeah, sure. So I feel like my path here has been, um, my path to this work has been kind of a long one. I feel like I was always sort of motivated by unfairness. And I say that as the oldest of six. So I'm really used to like sticking up for my younger siblings on like playgrounds. Um, and I, so I think that that's where it started. I was just like, that's not fair. You can't do that to her um, or him and, and, you know, just standing up for them. And so I, you know, I was raised here in New Orleans and when I was, um, after college, I was a teacher for a little while. And one of the things that I saw while I was a teacher was that, you know, sometimes my students would leave the classroom from like, you know, for a couple of days and, and you wouldn't know why. Sometimes it was because they had been locked up. Sometimes it was because, you know, their family, you know, had gotten kicked out of their house or, um, you know, sometimes it was because they had been killed. And so, you know, I just got to see a lot of the different ways that, um, you know, the, the, isms and the unfairness and the inequity in our system really plays itself out. And I remember one of my young students being arrested and held in the juvenile detention facility. Um, back then it was called the Youth Study Center and he was held there for something that actually a bunch of uh, guys um, who I had gone to high school with had done, you know, basically got drunk, stole a parent's car and crashed it. And um, the the kids that I had gone to school with um, who had done this were white and my student was black and the things, everything was different. And so I just feel like, you know, since then, <laughs> I think my path has just brought me here to this idea of, you know, we really have to talk about um, the different ways that people are treated in the system. We need to figure out different ways to, we need to talk about the system and do things in the system completely differently. Um, and so I think, you know, figuring out how do we focus on what happens upstream and how do we focus on flipping the conversation about um, the criminal justice system and doing that through data and research and advocacy um, has has just kind of been some, like I've just been, it's sort of inevitable is kind of what I would say. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, we're gonna get into all of that today. Um, so Derwin, can you talk a little bit about your journey um, to the role that you sit in now and, and the many roles we know you will fill uh, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for having me on here. Um, well, I've I've been I've been a lawyer now for 22 years. I I grew up uh, I grew up actually in Southern California. My mom moved from East Texas. I was raised with my two brothers and two sisters um, by my mom, and she grew up in East Texas on a farm in the Jim Crow South. And I remember when I graduated law school and told her I was going to take a job in New Orleans, she told me that I hadn't listened to a thing she said while I was a child. Um, she ran from uh, from the South quickly because of the injustice, and I ran to it because of the injustice. So I began my legal career by suing the state over how it was treating our children in our juvenile prisons. Um, was able to attack a system that was holding more than 2,000 kids in custody. And by the time we were done, had about 345 in custody after we let them out of the suit. And we had closed two prisons in the process. So I saw what the power of, of community, of, of the law can do 
to make things a little bit more just and then turned my my work toward public defense. Uh, and I've been the chief public defender for the last 11 years. And my big fight has been about how the injustices are baked into our system, how the 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 bias, the racism is built into our system and manifest most most brightly in how we fund our system. And we fund it on the people who go through it. We have a user pay criminal legal system, unlike anything else in the country. And I've been saying we need to change it for a long time and continue to do that work. And so I'm excited to be here to talk about how that intersects with a new DA and criminal legal system reform with such um, such powerful panelists. And, and of course, with you, Takima, who's been doing this work for a long time. So I'm excited. Well, I have to say this, and I want to say this in front of everybody. You are one of the reasons why this topic means so much to me. For all of the journey, but you were one of the first people to illuminate for me an understanding of the system. And I think, you know, when the story gets told about how criminal legal reform happened in the state of Louisiana, we're going to talk about Derwin Bunton and the work you've done um, to really illuminate some of those funding issues. All right. So, Ziki, can you tell us a little bit about what brings you to your work at OAT? Hi, my name is Nziki. Um, born and raised here in New Orleans. Um, I've been a school teacher for 20 years for Orleans Parish School Board. Um, and I am a single parent of three, but I have many kids um, just throughout and in the community. Um, and what brought me to vote is in 2017, my son, my biological son, that is, received um, many charges in the criminal justice system here in Orleans Parish. And I fought and I helped him. Um, I went through the process, um, just um, the process of being a part of the criminal justice system, which was a long, stressful process for me. And um, shortly after, I received charges. I received um, charges. Um, I had racketeering charges, well, with many charges that I really knew nothing about at that time and um, didn't have a criminal record, didn't participate in, a, in any criminal activity with my son or actually anyone else. So um, I fought and I fought to be sitting here right now. Um, it was a long, long journey full of trauma um, as I went through um, that process and trauma even after. So um, that that trauma actually led me to vote. I had to go out and get amongst people that knew and experienced some of the same things that I was going through. And I consider myself a victim of criminalization um, and vote was just a place to be. Um, I knew that they were going out in the community. They was trying to help um, those just that was in need. So I was one that was in need and I went to vote and I've been fighting here um, ever since. And I plan to stay because that just is personal and I would like to see change in a criminal justice system. So I'm out on the grounds and I'm fighting for my people. Awesome. And that's what we have here. We've got four folks who committed their lives to fighting for their people. And I would say three of the most impactful organizations um, moving the needle on criminal legal reform in the state of Louisiana. So um, we are one month past the presidential election and 
counting the days towards the installation of the new um, president. And criminal legal reform has been a hot topic during the campaign, um, but it always has been here locally, um, especially with the dubious title that Louisiana and Orleans Parish has had as the prison capital of the world, right? The United States is the most um, incarcerated place on earth. And within that, Louisiana and Orleans Parish are the most incarcerated places. Um, so as folks get ready to vote on Saturday in our fair city, we want to talk tonight about what we need out of the next DA. So Derwin, I want to start with you. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what a DA does and why this is a critical role in critical criminal legal reform in Louisiana? All right, thank you. And and sure, the in our system, the district attorney, the prosecutor uh, in our system is the person who accepts criminal charges. And by accept, I mean they decide not just to bring whatever the, the police say um, uh, should be brought after an arrest, but they actually have the power to investigate and bring their own charges if they want to as well. And so basically they decide, uh, the district attorney as an institution decides what moves through our system. So uh, there's an arrest that's made by a police officer, that police officer will forward a police report to the district attorney's office. The district attorney will, will screen that case. You'll often hear candidates talk about screening. They'll screen that case and they'll decide based on that police report, what charges move forward. They'll decide what charges to accept, what charges to refuse, what charges to change and accept if they want to as well. And from there begins everyone's journey in our criminal legal system. The, and with that power to accept comes the power to refuse as well. And that and the power to refuse is beyond uh, appeal, is beyond review. So if a district attorney chooses to refuse all charges or any charges, there is nothing anyone in our system can do. Those charges are gone and gone forever. If they accept a charge, there is nothing anyone in our system can do to stop it without a motion uh, or a trial that will end the controversy. And most times um, those cases move for, forward for good or ill. No, and those charges will determine what your maximum sentence exposure is, uh, what uh, what your bail amount is going to be. So it really is the, the, the gatekeeper to our system. And it puts people uh, from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool if the district attorney wants to. Thank you. Um, and so we're going to be trying to, you know, sprinkle in some education throughout the evening so folks really understand the critical role that the DA plays. Sarah, I wanted to ask you to kind of um, expand there. You um, work at the Vera Institute and you all have um, done quite a bit of work around prosecutorial reform. Um, so what is a progressive DA look like? What should we be expecting and asking for out of a progressive DA? And I am choosing to progressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we have seen, like, just with all of the work that we've done, we've seen that progressive can look a lot of different ways. And there are a lot of different paths to progressive, of course. Um, but, you know, as 
as Derwin is saying, um, because the the district attorney has this such a powerful role and they're essentially the driver of the system, they can really decide when people are not even included in the system at all. And when they um, are, there are different off ramps from the system, right? And so a progressive di district attorney could really look like someone who really shrinks their role and really shrinks how much they're really doing, right? And so when, you know, a little earlier we were talking about maybe it's time and not maybe, it's definitely time for us to flip the way that we think about the criminal uh, legal system because the criminal legal system is like a symptom of greater societal ills and it can't, like it's not going to give us mental health services. It's not going to, you know, educate people. It's not going to um, provide housing and food security and all of the things that we need. It's not going to cure racism. Um, and it's not gonna do all of these things. It's time for us to stop spending so much time trying to, you know, uphold it um, and put more people in it. And we need to start, you know, we really need to flip and think about it. Just like you said, we're one of the highest incarcerators. If we were doing such a great job, we'd also be like the safest place, but we're not because we're not doing a good job because the criminal legal system is like the end game, right? It's the last part. Um, and so really what the district attorney, what a progressive district attorney could do is um, think about how do I drastically, how do I stop charging for um, basically, you know, status crimes um, or status offenses. So for people who don't know what that means, that could be um, uh, disturbing the peace. So being drunk in public. Um, you know, there are different, you know, like criminal trespass, like you're sitting, you're, you're somewhere where you shouldn't, you shouldn't be. Um, there are some things that we just don't, that don't have to be a case. It doesn't have to be a case at all. Um, smoking weed, um, having any amount of weed or other drugs we've seen across the country that, you know, some places have decriminalized different drugs and a district attorney um, in, in this city of New Orleans has a lot of power about how do we treat it? How do we deal with addiction again? Because the criminal justice system is the end, right? Of, and, and is the symptom of a lot of issues that we have. It shouldn't be treating addiction. We should, have healthcare professionals deal with addiction. Um, and so it doesn't, that, you know, it's just kind of a waste of our resources to like think about it this way. Um, like Derwin said, um, you know, fines and fees and and bail and all of those things are, are burdens on people who do not have money um, and they cause other problems. If you have to pay for a bunch of, you've gone through the criminal legal system, you have a conviction, um, and now you have to, you, there's a fine attached to it and you're trying to figure out how to, you know, pay for that. But also now you have a record, so you need to get a job to pay for that, but you can't because of the record you see, we are creating this just circle of problems. And then people often, you know, end up in included in the, you know, not included, um, get trapped in the system again. Right. And so a district attorney has a lot of say over you know, we're not pursuing these types of um, sentences. We're not pursuing money bail in this case. Um, a progressive district attorney has the decision um, and the choice to not charge uh, children as adults. Um, and, um, and, and to figure out how do I, so say there is a crime that's committed and has to be charged. A progressive district attorney 
or a reform-minded district attorney could say, okay, well, I see these, what's happening here is a bunch of underlying stuff. And so what we need is diversion so that this person leaves the system and we go and deal with the underlying stuff um, so that we, we stop this from happening again. And so it looks like a lot of different things. It, it looks, I would say, the opposite of what we've been doing here um, in, in the city. And, um, and so we have a lot of opportunity um, for something new. And I'm, I'm really excited for something new. Yes. Especially after this year, right? We should be really excited for something new. Absolutely. And especially after the DA that we have unfortunately had to suffer under. And I want to move the conversation to you and Ziki and really get you to um, share with us what your reflections are. Um, having your own experience, your family being touched, um, particularly under this current um, district attorney, what are you hoping for? Um, and a new district attorney in Orleans Parish? Um, I don't want to actually repeat everything Sarah said, but I have to um, just kind of piggyback on some of it because I think we have some of the same views. And, you know, um, I mentioned earlier the trauma that came with just being a part of the criminal justice system. So um, I'm looking for change. I'm looking for um, the system to change, you know, even the reputation of our criminal justice system. The people, um, honestly, if you want me to just speak truthfully, the people do not trust the system at all. And I like to see that change. Um, even um, as I speak on my own personal experience um, from my son being 17 years old, being child as an adult, you know, the district attorney has the power to make changes. And um, like Sarah mentioned earlier, just for some of those charges that can be dropped and be overlooked, um, I just, I hate to see that the system allowed um, prison and allow incarceration to be um, the first option instead of the last option. So I would like to see us just um, invest in programs, like we said, and like Sarah said, I don't expect the system to provide um, um, healthcare um, to take care of um, those that may be experiencing mental health issues, um, the homeless, but provide those programs that can do that. Um, I myself, I, I was going through so much of trauma to, it was just unbearable. So why couldn't I have the necessary um resources that I need? It was not there. That's why I had to go with vote. So I can, um I needed to be restored as a citizen, as a parent, as a mother. Um, I needed to be restored and they were able to restore me and give me some of the things that I need that the system didn't. So, um, this election is just so near and dear to me. I really can't go on and on, but to have a new DA, to be able to change the narrative, I'm excited about, I'm pushing for it. Um, I just want to really see that change. Um, and I think this gives us an opportunity to just open the doors for change in the community. I'm excited about it. I can't wait to say it. I'll be out on the grounds. We know y'all will. We know both has oh, been be out. You see those blue shirts. I know you see us. I got a blue shirt too. Both has been picked. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more, um, actually bring the conversation back to you, um, Derwin. 
So we all watch, hopefully, most of us watch 13 or have read some Brian Stevenson books or um, even saw the movie, right? But we all recognize that the root of mass incarceration is racism. So yeah. we all we all clear about that. Um, so really thinking about reimagining our system and um, you all have begun to talk about that. We hear this concern about safety. Um, and then we also hear a cry for justice. And we know that the DA has to balance those two things. So Duran, what are your thoughts there around how a DA holds the community's concern for safety? And when I say safety, I'm not just talking about white folks scared of black folks, you know, I'm talking about even within black communities, we have concerns around safety. So how, with a progressive DA, how would we want a progressive DA to show up and really balance those two tensions, safety and justice? Well, I think taking, taking you know, everything and putting it together, I, the first thing that comes to mind for me is first do no harm. Like that's, I think that's part of how we need to reorient our system is to first do no harm, harm and recognize what exactly we are dealing with crime is not crime is not a disease. Crime is a symptom uh, of other things that are going wrong, and being and having the courage to reinvest and, in my opinion, build community capacity and partner with community so that I don't have to get arrested to get health care, so that I don't have to get arrested to get mental health care. I don't have to get arrested for someone to notice that things aren't going right in school or in my home or whatever I'm doing. And, and I think a, a district attorney, at, because of their unique position in the system, should reorient themselves in that way. What we have been living with, what I have been working with, is a culture of conviction. And the idea is to get someone in and get them convicted. We'd have people come in, for example, and they're being charged with illegal possession of prescription drugs. And we had a case um, once, you know, more than once, but we have in one, one set of cases, we'd have people come and they just didn't have their prescription at the time. And so we'll show the assistant district attorney that, hey, they got arrested, but they actually do have a prescription. And the response almost universally was, well, okay, I'll let them plead to a misdemeanor, right? Right. The case should go away, right? We need a DA that is willing to say when public safety is not going to be, when we're not going to be any safer by a conviction, we need a DA to say, I don't need a conviction. I need to partner with community. I need to help and share resources to build community capacity so that black and brown folks who make up the majority of folks who come through here have access to medical mental health care and the thing that the things that are um, that do cause the symptom of crime. And we also have to think about what we criminalize. The DA, no matter what's on the books, the district attorney actually has the power to ignore certain things. And there is nothing anyone can do about it. And my my favorite crime, um, and, and if you run into lawyers and public defenders, you'll talk about folks with their favorite crime. My favorite crime is illegal possession of a handgun by a juvenile. And what folks need to understand is crimes are political expression. 
Yeah. Uh, they are expressions of, of what people in power value, what they don't value, and who they're afraid of. And a legal possession of a handgun by a juvenile is one of those that captures all of that because it sounds like a great law. Who wants a kid with a gun walking around, right? Except when you read it, it has eight defenses written into it none of which would be uh, intuitive for any black child I know to think about. So one is, for example, if you're on your way to a gun range, a child can carry their gun to the gun range, right? I don't know a lot of black children who go to the gun range, right? They, anyone on, uh, anyone with a note from their parents can have a pistol. And I used to joke about how I can't wait to have my 12-year-old daughter on the porch with a 38 and the police roll by and I tell them, no, it's okay. She has my permission to be on the porch with that 38. That crime right there captures so many different things uh, that we know is simply politicized, just politicizes conduct. And the, our code is replete with them. We need a DA who looks with an eye toward that and then we'll start seeing how folks coming through the gate start to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And we can focus on the more serious things that come through uh, the courthouse that really do impact community safety. Okay, so you, I, I'm blown away by the, by the note from a parent. And it's so clear, right, when you read those defensive, who they're meant to defend, who they're right. meant to support and be um, useful. Right. Um, I needed a note. <laughs> you need, all you needed was a parent note. There, there you go. Um, so just expanding on that conversation of safety and um, justice, Sarah, what are your thoughts there about how a progressive DA can hold that space? Yeah, um, I always, and it's, it's a great question, this idea of how do we balance safety and justice. But I always get a little bit irate with this question, because I'm like, there is no safety without justice. We, we can't do it. it. It won't happen. And we think about the two things together. We must think about the two things together. Um, and I think that the way that we balance this is we think about what does our society, our society needs to be made whole. Our communities need to be made whole. And right now, our criminal legal system is just taking big chomps out of them. And we just, that, that causes us to be unsafe um, when we're not made whole. And, it, and the injustice of the system causes us to be unsafe. And so, you know, I think that uh, what this could look like, you know, the vision that, um, a lot of people have is how do we how do we start to think about and you have to think about a lot of different things and so i have a million thoughts swirling in my head but one of the things that we have to think about when we think about data is who is coming to the system who even comes through the gate um because the way that we have like derwin said politicized things or the way that we have criminalized behaviors we have people coming through the gate who should never come in the first place. And we have other people we turn a blind eye towards. Um, you know, we've seen- To make sure they don't get, or have a thousand defensive in the, right. in the right. right, to make sure that they're not caught up, right? And, you know, we have to think about, you know, the, like who, what, it, what areas are being patrolled to find drug, um, drug use, right? And what areas are not? Um, I went to LSU, and uh, there was a lot of drug use there. 
I'm not going to say what I did or did not do, but I'm just letting folks know there was a lot of drug use. There were not cruisers looking for the drug use there. That's not, that's not what was happening. Um, what was happening instead was that different areas of Baton Rouge at the time were being patrolled for this drug use, no matter how big or how small. And that's what's happening here too. There's a lot of drug use happening at Tulane and Loyola and all the schools, right? Um, but the cruisers are going to certain places, right, to look for it and not other places. And so we just have to be really clear about that and, and understand that we have inherent in our system just racism, obviously, and yes. different treatment, differential treatment. And the data tells us that. And so having a, also having a district, uh, a district attorney who's looking at, um, looking at the data and looking at, okay, what are, what comes to us? What do we accept? What are we even doing? Like, how are we charging? Are we charging people who come in who are, uh, have used drugs? We're charging them and we're maybe putting them in diversion as opposed to not charging other ones. What are we doing with the cases? Like, let's talk about this differential treatment. Another thing that you can look at with, you know, being transparent helps with this, right? When, when other people have to look at your data and you're like, uh, yeah, we're definitely doing this thing. It causes some change um, and it helps people push for change too. Um, I think when we're thinking about what is, when we think about safety, there's so much that our system does that has nothing to do with safety. There's so many people who come into the system who are locked up, not because of anything we're afraid of. Like we're, you know, there are actually a lot of people in jail right now who I think, you know, when we've looked at the data and again, it goes back to the data around, um, when you're looking at how, who is locked up, what are they locked up for? We have a third of the people in jail locked up because they can't pay bail. Um, so that means we're losing jobs, we're losing houses, we're losing children because we're caught up in the system. And then we're losing future opportunity, which right. is causing us to be less safe because what opportunities are there for people who don't have, you know, a lot of opportunity? Um, you know, I think when you're looking at the data, also you see that a lot of the people who are locked up um, are um, are there for nonviolent things. And if you, if you wanted to think of this dichotomy of of violent versus nonviolent, right? I I don't think that that's a good thing to think about. <laughs> I think we actually need to think about a lot of other things. But if you were just thinking about that, you would actually see that more of the people who are locked up, the majority of them, are there for nonviolent things. Um, that that nobody was, you know, no one was going to die, no one was going to be injured. They that that's what the numbers tell us. And so when you think about that, you wonder what could our society look like if we, in New Orleans, and with the help of a district attorney, having a district attorney part of this conversation and part of these actions is really going to get us to a, a different and better place. But I'm excited about this. Like, what could it look like if we're like, okay, that's 60%. We're just not, we're not going to deal with that 60%. We're not going to bring them into the system. We're going to reject those charges. We're not going to deal with it. And now, okay, let's, let's focus on this group of folks. Oh, wait, we see that we have some mental health issues here. Oh, let's, let's work with our mental health providers. And hopefully one day we will get some sort of um, mental health care treatment facility here or, you know, something. Um, and we can deal with that that way. And then let's look at this. Uh, oh, it, I see addiction. Let's deal with the substance. You know, like, how do we figure out how to shrink the system? And I think 
a district attorney can really help us with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, it's someone with a nuanced understanding. And what I heard earlier in the conversation, and you're saying it again, is you know, it's also about how the district attorney is oriented. If you're oriented mm -hmm. towards convictions, that's what you're counting, that's what matters. Right. And that's also what you educate your constituency mm -hmm. about in terms of what matters. And right. so I really want to take it to Enziki on this next question just around constituency because um, what I love about VOTE is that you all are not just out there um, advocating, but you're educating folks. So they understand what's going on in the system, how it is maiming and harming folks. And so talk to me a little bit about um, how you see this conversation about safety and justice and the irony that one of the, the least safe places <laughs> in Orleans Parish is our jail, right? Our system is unsafe. You talked about the trauma of being, if people say touched by the system, maimed by the system. Right. Um, and so there's an irony there when we talk about safety versus, to your point, justice, when our justice system is, in fact, unsafe. So, Ziki, can you talk about the work that VOTE does to really educate folks about the criminal legal system in Orleans and the work that you guys have been doing to get folks to the polls this Saturday? Well, um, VOTE, we just... Um... We're just doing a whole bunch of things. I could go on and on because like we're being pulled in many different places. Um, sometimes I'm telling folks, well, you know, we helping changing the laws. Or sometimes I say, well, you know, we helping educate people on the new acts. Or no, now we're getting people out in the public on the ground. So it goes on and on. And I don't want to be all over the place, but it's a whole lot going on. And we have so much work to do. So um vote is out um doing the work we out educating folks um letting folks know that first of all we are here so we have our loud blue shirts we we making ourselves very visible we are educating people on the act 636 just letting them know um there's so many people like i'm out and i'm registering folks to vote and i hear the response like oh i can't vote i've been to jail you know and so with vote we're educating them letting them know that even though you've been incarcerated you are still allowed to vote that is not um broadcast enough i'll say that so we letting them know that you still can vote if you've been on probation and parole for at least five years you have an opportunity to vote if you are formally incarcerated and finished with your probation you're out there um you're out there you can vote so we we're really just educating them on the whole um the whole process we're um teaching them um in every way possible, just letting them know about the politicians, uh, the DAs, uh, what role those politician plays. Um, I could go on and on, but um, trying to stick really mainly to your question. So we're out this Saturday. We'll be out doing whatever we can. Of course, we often ask, like, what do we think are who are we going to vote for? And you know, we we're not able to share that. We don't pick. Um, the politicians, we educate, we teach them and let them know that we are here for you. You can vote. Um, no matter and we educate them no matter what's your background, what's your political party. Um, so we just supporting individuals. We we're actually supporting the candidates. We um we have um 
our ballot. It's not even a ballot. It's actually an Orleans Parish District Attorney election runoff. Um, we have this here that we stick on doors just so people can know what the politicians, what they favor and what they're against. So um, we're doing a lot out there. And you also spoke, I want to go back because you spoke on safety and the criminal justice system. And I can't see how those two connect in either way. They do not work hand in hand. So we we just, I just need, I would love, I, I mean, I know we all need it, but we want to see that change. So it can be, um, our city can be a safe um, environment. And true enough, um, I mentioned about, um, the criminal justice system we vote we we're fighting for justice but we want our folks even those that's been impacted in the criminal justice system to receive what they deserve and nothing more and nothing less and the da um the da have the power to to do that for the people so i mean we're we're here and on saturday we'll be i can say everywhere we hope that wherever you go you see us visible educating having our signs out and just letting people know that um change can happen and we want them to believe that change can happen and fight and have a voice i mean that's why we're educating them so they can know that you have a voice right. you need to be heard through your voice so all right, you, all, you guys are out there on Saturday. Follow church to the polls. Um, we're gonna start wrapping up our conversation, but I do have one um, final question um, for you all because it's one thing to elect; it's another to hold folks accountable. Um, and so, after Saturday, what is our work on Monday? How do we hold whoever takes this office accountable, um, call them in or call them out if need be? And I'll start with you, Derwin, since you will be working very closely with this person. <laughs> Is that what we call working with? You know, they're fighting all the time. Just kidding. Um, well, what it looks like, uh, it looks like, looks like this. We vote on Saturday and then for us who are doing this work every day, who are trying to educate our communities, who are trying to make these changes, we get out a clean sheet of paper and we start keeping score. Like that's that's what we start doing uh, after the election. We, we look at what they promised and we tell them uh, and we keep track of how they abide by that, how they're faithful to that and how they're not. We look at the policies we want in place and how long it takes them to adopt them, if they adopt them at all. And we stay, we stay loud and we stay vigilant. Like the thing, one of the things that we did with Leon is we never, we never let uh, Leon go without hearing from, from us and from community. You know, when he, when he tried to, when he tried to convict our investigators for investigating, uh, we made sure it was national news. We also made sure they had the best legal representation and support of our office. And he had, and he had to back up off of that. He had to get away from it, right? And we're going to have to do that as a community. We have now built some muscle with a lot of the folks on the ground, a lot of the organizations who have educated themselves and educated others, 
we have built the muscle to keep score. And we what we're going to need to do is keep score and make live, make real those principles we want to see in our criminal legal system, one that is based on justice, equity. Uh, we're going to be pushing our vision as an office, which is dignity, justice, and hope. Uh, and we're going to make sure that if someone goes sideways, we're going to be able to call them out for it. And remember, these elections happen every six years. Uh, six years from now, we're going to tell them what the final score is and let folks know whether we think they deserve our trust or do we need to go into a different direction? Yeah. And so, so data, data, data. And I actually see a comment um, from yeah. one of the listeners that talks about the need for transparency. Yeah. In, um, and I know various prosecutorial reform all do a lot around data and the district attorney's office. So can you play yeah. on accountability from a data perspective. Yeah. So, you know, Vera loves data, no matter what. We love data. We love research. Um, and we like to make that accessible to people. And, um, you know, I think something that has been really clear and what people, you know, in this conversation and this race and the runoff is that people really want transparency from a district attorney. And one of the things that our work, you know, we do a lot of technical assistance and support, and we like to support this transparency. It helps make the system better. It helps make um, it transparent and understandable to the people of New Orleans. It helps us understand what is going well, what is not going well. It helps us look at where is the racism and the sexism and all the isms, where are those um, bearing themselves out. And so, you know, our work looks like taking stock because one of the the issues and one of the, the, the difficulties um, that we've had is that, um, you know, previously this this office has been sort of a black box, and actually, you know, we really um, uh, we really have realized that you know one of the th the reports that our reshaping prosecution team put out was that we need to unlock that black box and um, and use data to do that. People need to understand if you know, our taxpayer dollars pay for the district attorney. So we need to know what's happening in there. So, you know, Monday comes, it's like, hello, congratulations, let's get started. So we need <laughs> to take stock of what exactly has happened. And now we need to figure out you've made, you know, you've made these promises around transparency. You've made these promises around charging. You've made these promises around the habitual offender statute. Like, you know, that data, yeah, like, you know, as Derwin said, it helps keep the score. What are you doing? It helps other people, um, you know, all of the data that we're using, you know, transparency and decarceration are things that, you know, are priorities to um, Vera, but also they seem to be priorities to our candidates as well. And they're really priorities to the public. And so, you know, supporting that and providing that technical assistance and support so that we are successful come 2026 when we're doing this again, um, that we're not like, oh, again, we still have all of these people in jail. Like, I don't want to have a 2020 conversation in 2026. Also, because I want to forget this here, y'all. It was terrible. Um, so, <laughs> so, like, we need, it's time for us to have different, um, different, different conversations. And it's it's time for us to, you know, I think that even looks like building a new database because, you know, we have these databases that have been used that people complain about and they're not helping us. Let's get something new. Let's get something that's also accessible for people, because when they look at 
boring numbers. They don't understand what is happening. And then you've lost the transparency game. People should be able to look at, yes, a colorful graph and understand that graph means, oh, you're not doing a good job. Or, oh, okay. Okay, I see where we're going. So that's what that works looks like come Monday. Bear will be the receipt keeper. That's what you said. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. All the receipts. All the receipts. <laughs> um, so, Ziki, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Um, you know, what is your version of keeping the DA accountable? What is vote um, prepared to do? Because I know this is a long game. Um, for for a vote. So what does accountability look like from vote? Accountability look like um, we're holding them accountable for what they what they said that they would do for the people. We want to see that happen. If you say that you're not going to jail our ju- our children, we don't want to see our children in cages. So um, that DA in office, we're going to be able to look just right here. I could go right back to some of these same issues and some of the same, like she said, data facts. Um, what you said you're going to do, we want to hold you accountable for doing. We want to work with the DA and we want to work with the system. I personally would like to stop just going in that site and hating the sight of that site. I would like to go in that site and know that that is a, that is a fair, just system. I would like to just see that change and not just my own personal views. Vote want to see that change. We want to work with the um, DA. We want to work with the judges. We want to continue to support our people and help them um, just restore the um full human rights and we want to see some of those cages we want to unchain some of those cages and let our people go like there's so many that that's sitting behind bars that shouldn't be um so we'd like to just see the change we're going to fight for the change and we want to work with the criminal justice system on behalf of our folks awesome so we're going to close down our conversation um but this platform that we have created to highlight freedom fighters like you all. And so there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the show and they're rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask it and you're going to tell me what the first thing is that comes to your mind. So I'll ask one question and we'll go Derwin, Sarah, and Zeke. So Derwin, what is justice? Justice is the, the absence of bias, the presence of equity and access uh, for all. Ooh, very good. Um, justice is repair and restoration for more than 400 years of wrongs and injustices. And Ziki, what is justice? Justice to me is receiving only what you deserve, being fair, being treated fairly. Um, justice is um, not being charge and not having charges based on um um racism justice is actually just receiving what what's what you deserve fairness i we would like to see fairness so when i say ju- when you say the word justice i make the connection with um getting what you deserve being dealt a fair hand there you go Derwin, what is freedom uh, freedom is freedom to me is the ability to be your best self, explore your best self, and realize your best self with without limits to 
uh, opportunity and, and without uh, without judgment. Um, I would say that freedom is the right to thrive without chains and cages and constraints of all the isms. And Siki, what is freedom? Freedom is the right to live, to live, um, to have power, to be able to act, speak, think without hindrance and burdens. All right. The last question I have is what is the one thing that you cannot live without? Mine changes. Right now it's ice cream. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, seriously, what is the one thing you can't live without? I was about to say uh, Reese's peanut butter um, Christmas trees because uh, it's the season for those. I love them things. But um, the thing I cannot live without, um, uh, I think, uh, love. I can't live without love. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um <laughs> I'm, you know, and Ziki, we can repeat them, you know, it's okay. Um, I, so I was gonna, I am actually just gonna be really real and um, not intellectual about it. Um, I can't live without coconut oil. Um, and, <laughs> and I can't live, <laughs> I can't live with, I mean, I just had to be really truthful. Um, Eat it, you can rub it on yourself. You can rub it on yourself, like you can't live without it. Um, you put it in your hair exactly it's it's just everywhere shea butter you know same thing yeah you're right you're right um i can't live without coconut oil i can't live without bright colors um i can't live without statement earrings and so i guess it's that i can't live without joy so and there because it is so important to i think center those who've been most impacted in this conversation i want to give you the last word in ziki what can you not live without well, I can't live without my kids. And I th I felt as though the system was trying to take me from that. And that's why I fought so hard and came with some, um, and got connected with some strong fighters. I can't live without my kids. I can't live without love. Um, I like to just give love and share love and peace. We like to just um, have a peaceful, just be in a peaceful mindset. So I guess that sums it up. I had to still during love because- I'm full of love, but I also want that peace. Absolutely. And I'm happy that the, my charges have been dropped. I am out of the criminal justice system. So that alone released so much of trauma and gives me peace. So. There you go. Well, I really, really, really thank you all for taking time out of your evening to share with the audience. For those who were not able to join us today, this will be rebroadcasted on the podcast platform this coming Saturday. And I know all of us will be waiting with bated breath to see the results because we got work to do on Monday. However, Thank y'all so, so much for the work you do all the time and for spending this time with us. Have an amazing evening and love y'all. Bye-bye. Love y'all. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Hey, you. Are you following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com, under the podcast tab. 
Follow me on social media on Facebook at Converge for F-O-R change on Instagram at I am Takima and at Converge for change. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast library like Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Spotify. 